Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 16 in our series for 2019, and today's date is Friday, May the 17th. First, I talk to Tony Nash, the founder and CEO of Booktopia, the Australian competitor to Amazon. And then I talk to AMP Capital Chief Economist Shane Oliver, looking at the impact of the US-China trade war on the market. But first, let's talk to Tony Nash. So you and your brother... Simon Nash and your brother-in-law, Steve Traurig, started Booktopia back in 2004 with a humble $10 a day budget. Is that right? Correct. Yep. That was, um, well, my brother, he was handling the finances at the time and he said, you can start Booktopia and it has to be on a budget of $10 per day. He's very generous, my brother. So we, um, Mr. Angus and Robertson, they used another company to outsource their website and fulfill all their orders. And so what, what happened was we, we had a meeting with them at the end of 2003 and pitched the idea, uh, you know, that we got them to the, we got Angus and Robertson to the top of Google and they managed 80 bookstores, websites. Maybe they should introduce our internet marketing consultancy to all their other customers and we'll get them all to the top of Google. And, uh, and the owner of the company said, no, I'm not interested. And I said, you're not interested in making more money. And he said, look, we, we, um, 
you know, we're, we're busy running bookstore websites and fulfilling those orders. We're not, we're not interested in introducing you. So I asked, well, how does it all work? And they, they said it takes 10 minutes to set up a bookstore website. So what happened was we, um, I went away from that meeting and that's, that's where I said, I wouldn't mind giving that book thing a bit of a go. So there was no big plan. There was no vision. There was no like, okay, let's, let's do this. We've seen a gap in the market. It was literally a side project and, and with, with a very, very small budget and it just kept getting bigger and bigger. One thing I noticed about Booktopia is you really know how to track your customers. What does customer engagement mean at Booktopia? We asked ourselves the same question every day and have done so for 15 years. And that is, what do our customers want? And by ask, asking that question and answering those that question, you, you're on a voyage of discovery. And so what we found is that they wanted stock. Uh, they wanted the website to be a certain way. Uh, we, we, I mean, we A-B test our website to see what works better than one over one version versus another version, this button or this font convert better. So we've done that. We, we holding stock, um, compelling pricing, being Australian, supporting Australian literacy projects in, um, in sponsoring writers festivals, readers conferences. And, and every day you ask these questions. I mean, when it came to where we are today, we're right near the Olympic stadium. It was like, you know, what do our customers want? Well, they want faster delivery, uh, and they want it, and they and they want it into the Australia Post network as soon as possible. So, well, we better be right next to the Australia Post major hub in Sydney, and uh, and so we moved right near the hub, so we get later pickups, and it's faster into their system, which means it's quicker for the customer. It wasn't great for us; we didn't live anywhere near here, but that's where we moved to. Your customer engagement strategy is very similar to Amazon's. How much competition are they providing now that they're in Australia? Um, we, um, people don't normally ask that question. Um, they ask, uh, which I always enjoy, has Amazon made an impact on your business? Um, and I love answering it because it's like, well, yes, they have, you know, with a grave, with a grave voice and, and, and we've gone from 80 million to 130 million in revenue since they announced they were coming to their arrival. And now that they've been here for a year and a half, so no, no impact, uh, no threat. They uh, Amazon is everything to everyone. And if you're everything to everyone, you cannot be one thing to one vertical market. And I'll share with you what I did a, a number of years ago. It was probably about I don't know, four years ago. Amazon hadn't got here yet, but you know, it had been a while. I mean, there was talk that they were always going to come. And, and so what happened was I went around the world on my computer, but also on my travels, just looking at companies that were doing well in an Amazon mature environment. Why, why were they doing well? And everywhere I looked, it was because they focused on one thing and did it really well. And that reinforced to us that we, we had done well in books. We had gone from you know, zero to over 100 million in revenue. And it was like, well, we just keep focusing on books. And, and that, that way, people know who, who you are, why they're coming to you, and, and why they want to buy from you. And when, when now, when, when all you've got is a phone, and, and that's the size of the, the shop, Front that you're doing business with, or the or your desktop or your laptop, it's not a lot of space to engage with with a customer. And if you're trying to stuff everything onto that page and you're selling everything, it, it does get harder and harder. But Amazon coming into the Australian market actually expands the market for books in Australia. Does that present opportunities for Booktopia? Um, I think that's just Amazon probably um, coming into the market. I mean, they're a huge, huge organisation. So the the uh, the opportunity for us, and I can't say it's the same for other for other verticals, but quite often you're going on the Amazon website and doing a search. And if you really look at who the seller is, 
It's not often Amazon Australia, it's someone else. We have 150,000 titles in stock um, and that is, that's a lot. I mean, uh, the largest border stores would have had 100,000 titles. Your normal corner store bookstore has about eight to 10,000 titles. And the new Amazon bookshops that are in America have five to 6,000 titles. So it gives you an, an idea, 150,000 titles. So a lot of the product we have here, we are tweaking our algorithms at the moment because we are getting frustrated well, our customers are getting frustrated, and so we're getting frustrated that we're bottoming out the demand for our for us to sell the book to a customer is on the increase, and therefore we hate seeing more stock arriving soon. We're going to start holding more of the stock of the titles that we know we sell a lot of, just to make sure that we're not running out. Uh, we're happy to get down to one, but we want the next lot to arrive to uh, re replenish the the coffers so we can continue to sell more. So we're just addressing that at the moment. So how are sales going? Sales are soaring. Sales, they're actually pretty stable, to be fair. If we look at the uh, Australian book market, it's pretty well been around $2 billion Australian dollars for the last decade and a little bit of, little bit of increase. So um, there's, there's, it's not going down, which is what's happened to a lot of other media products. Books is, is a very, very sta stable business. Keeping in mind, it's a 570-year-old industry. Uh, and before that, uh, they were they were making books not from printing presses, but they were making books. So so it's a very 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 old and established industry. Um, what the, what we've found is is more importantly that um, well there was three things people said. One is that the bookshops were you know were dying. The other was that it's the end it was the end of the physical book. And the third thing was is that Amazon's going to annihilate you. Now uh, bookstores have been closing down a little bit. Others have been opening up, and some are doing actually really well. I know I know stores here in Australia like QBD. Uh, Harry Hartog, Berkelos, Kinokunya, uh, Readings, uh, Avenue Bookshop. There's there's avid reader in Brisbane. There's quite a lot. Uh, even in Melbourne, uh, Tasmania, full of book, full of bookshop, Fuller's Bookshop. They'd, there's a lot that are doing extremely well. And so it's not necessarily about just having books on your shelf and having people come in. It's it's really connecting with the customer in your store. We try and emulate that. Um, by doing it online. That's why we've got book experts working for us and who are promoting, talking about books. We're interviewing authors. We're doing, we're, we're creating our unique content. And I, I think that's, that's where uh, the, that's where the value that we all bring to the industry is about knowing your product and, and doing well. That really hasn't changed over thousands of years of selling. I mean, that's, that's the same. The book books are, are definitely uh, selling and continuing to sell. Ebook sales, funnily enough, are starting to drop away. So people thought that the digital book was going to take over. People have tried it. That's not exactly what they thought. They, they prefer a book. They do a lot of screen time. Like there's a lot of time on your phone and your computer, and people are saying, I want time out. I actually want to grab a book, and I want to sit on the couch, or I want to go away, and I want to read my book. We're hearing that a lot today. After abandoning a plan to list on the ASX in 2016, you announced an equity crowdfunding campaign to raise up to $10 million for the business, which saw customers becoming shareholders. Look, cu customers have always been our investors. I mean, think about it. When you start on $10 a day, uh, people buying from you and giving you their money, and we're using that to hire more people, write more software, hold more stock, uh, buy more automation, move into larger premises. They're, they've been our investors all the way through. And uh, and so we're very, very cognizant of that. Uh, the crowdfunding is something that's been fun and interesting. And we're, we're out there and customers have been investing in us. Uh, the, the, the offer closes on the 14th of June. So we're getting close now and uh, it's starting to feel that element of the momentum pick up as people, more and more people start to invest uh, more. However, we're also doing a a capital raise outside of that where we're talking to the 
the family offices, high net worth individuals and funds who who is who are looking at our growth strategy and and that's probably where the um, the, the customers are going to benefit as we as we bring on you know, tens of millions of dollars, hopefully in uh, in investor funding and uh, and we prepare to grow the company from the 130 million up to 500 million and then onto a billion, which is really you know the job at the job at hand. So much of the money raised would surely go into automation. Correct, automation, uh, stock, uh, having more cash in the business. There's some of our growth strategies around the use of funds. The growth strategies, however, outside of that, uh, we've been extremely successful in the academic space, tertiary um, education and scholarly and and that that high-end technical and academic uh, textbooks. It's just growing growing very, very fast for us. We've also become a book distributor. So uh, publishers are now appointing us as the as the distributor in Australia for their their range of uh, books, and uh, that's been great because we now hold the stock here on behalf of the publisher, uh, and we sell two bookstores as well. We've got lots and lots of bookstores buying from us all around Australia, and businesses as well buying from us, not necessarily all book bookstores as part of our B two B business. Uh, that's been going for a year and a half, and we're very very excited about that growth. Uh, we've also been in, involved in. Um, We've got some growth strategies around our loyalty program, which we haven't deployed yet. So there's there's things that we're doing on one hand, in-house technically getting the product and having more product in our system, but also uh, some expansion ideas that we've got, which um, are very, very exciting as well, that are more tactical. Tony Nash, thank you very much for your time. Leon, thanks for your interest in shining a spotlight on us. Really appreciate it. And now let's talk to AMP Capital Chief Economist, Shane Oliver. Now, Shane, the market has taken a nosedive. It's in freefall now that uh, the trade war between the US and China is underway. Uh, yeah, it seems like we've gone back to the dim, dark days of the trade war that we saw uh, getting underway last year. Uh, about a week or so ago, President Trump announced that the delayed tariffs from late last year would now go into effect. Uh, that occurred and, of course, we've seen the Chinese announce retaliation, albeit on a much smaller scale. Um, that, of course, has changed share markets for globally uh, since the trade war resumed. Um, global shares, US shares, have fallen 4.5%, but that's volatile, so they could, they could quite easily come down a bit more. Um, and, of course, the Australian share market has been hit as well, not quite as much, but uh, nevertheless, it has come down as well. Uh, so this this is a worrying development. It, it was thought that um, the trade war was on the way to being resolved. The talks between the China and the US seem to be making progress on many fronts. It looked like only minor details to, were left to resolve. But obviously something has gone wrong. Maybe uh, both sides sort of felt that, that uh, you know, that Economic conditions had improved since late last year. Share markets had, had rallied, so therefore they've decided to take risks again and uh, and ramp up the pressure on either on, on each other, which could be an explanation as to what's gone on. Um, but, of course, we'll never know. I think ultimately there will be some sort of deal between the US and China, but uh, it looks to me like that might take a little while yet, and we may have to wait until hopefully... President uh, Trump and President Xi Jinping meet in uh, Japan at uh, towards the end of, of June for a G20 summit. So that's probably the next event to keep an eye on. Um, but in the meantime, trade uncertainty is, is going to be back with us. And uh, that obviously brings with it the risk that global growth might uh, get hit. 
a little bit as we go through this year, and obviously that's re-injected some volatility into share markets. Um, but as I say, hopefully that will be resolved and uh, we can go back to where we were a few weeks ago uh, and start to see a continuation of that recovery in share markets we'd been seeing so far this year. Uh, one of the complicating factors is the politics of it. I mean, President Trump faces an election next year and uh, uh, this would fit in very much with his uh, election platform. The... Uh... Yeah, the election next year is a is a pressure point on on Donald Trump. Um, on the one hand, he wants to go to the election and say that he's cut a deal with China, that he's been tough, that he's achieved what no other president's been able to do so far, um, and hopefully that would help support his base or encourage them to support to support him. Uh, counter argument, of course, is that uh, if the trade war has gotten a lot worse between now and then, then that will affect confidence in the US. Uh, it'll affect the US economy. Um, Americans will be paying more for goods at Kmart. Just don't forget a lot of the goods in, in uh, I should say, Walmart in the US. Walmart's the big one in the US, Walmart and Kmart, but whatever it is, um, Americans will be paying more for goods in those stores um, because a lot of them come from China. Um, and, of course, if uh, the US economy is adversely affected by this uh, renewed trade war, then that will result in higher unemployment. And historically, US presidents don't get re-elected when unemployment is on the way up. So, the election is a complicating factor in all of this. Trump wants to sound strong, wants to show that he's achieved something. On the other hand, um, not resolving the issue but seeing it escalate could actually make life tougher for him uh, going into the uh, the presidential election. But, I mean, at the same time, you would have to say that uh, uh, it would be in both of their interests to get something resolved quickly because of the state of their economy. I think it's certainly in both sides' interest to get this issue resolved, and that was the logic behind the trade talks that we had been seeing up until a week or so ago. Um, but it seems that logic got thrown out the window. Maybe that was because the economic indicators uh, out of China and out of the and out of the US recently have been uh, more favourable, and so uh, the Chinese side and the US side thought, "Oh well, the pressure's off; uh, we can sound tough again." And maybe that's what's happened here. But I, I think ultimately. Um, the falls in share markets uh, are, are a guide to what may happen. And if share markets continue to slide, that will put um, economic growth at risk and that will put pre renewed pressure on President uh, Trump and Xi to, to cut a deal. So I think ultimately we end up back at the point where they will end up cutting a deal, but um, it may take a bit more market pain before we get to that point. But, I mean, the, the issue is uh, there's a lot of uncertainty and this should lead to a slowing in the economy, wouldn't it? The uncertainty around trade could lead to a slowing in the US and Chinese economies, and that uh, that would certainly be negative for things. Um, that's the sort of thing you don't want. And uh, hopefully, uh, President, uh, both sides understand that. Um, problem is that it may require more share market weakness to, to bring that point home, to remind them that there is a big risk here. Uh, and that, that in turn could mean that share markets have to go down a little bit further before they, uh, they find a low and start going back up again. And uh, you're hoping that uh, something could be resolved around about June when they meet? That's right. I, I think that um, G20 meeting in Tokyo or in Japan, uh, June 23rd, I think is when it kicks off or, or later this, this uh, uh, later in June, um, that's probably the key date to watch in all of this. In fact, that's June 28th, so a little bit later than June 23rd. So that's the key date to watch uh, going forward. Um, and obviously, we'll have to wait and see what happened there. But it was the um, the meeting down in uh, Argentina, Buenos Aires, uh, late last year, I think early uh, December, that um, set off the latest round of trade talks. And hopefully, another meeting between Xi Jinping and President Trump will do the same. 
And uh, so where do you see China coming from on this? Uh, do you see them coming to the table? Well, I, I think ultimately China will probably come to the table, but they, they've been put under a lot of pressure here. Um, President Trump's approach is sometimes a little, sometimes a little bit uh, insulting, even if um, uh, you can make an argument that China needs to open up a bit more. Um, and there's also a bunch of tensions lately which would have added to the pressure on China and made the the relationship between the US and China more difficult. You know, we've seen the the breakdown in talks with um, North Korea. Uh, we've seen America uh, start uh, implementing uh, sanctions on all countries that get oil from Iran, and that includes China, whereas previously they'd been waived from those sanctions. Um and there's obviously ongoing issues regarding Huawei and Taiwan. So all of these things, I think, have tested the relationship to some degree, and maybe that's uh, a factor contributing to China pushing back a bit on, on making a deal in the short term. But ultimately, I think it is in both sides' interest to cut a deal on this issue. It's just a question of how long it will take before we get to that point. And all those issues, such as uh, oil from Iran and Huawei and uh, North Korea would actually complicate these talks. Th- those issues certainly complicate the talks. They, all of those issues uh, have seen the US and China on opposing sides, <laughs> and that uh, just makes the, uh, the, res- the talks to resolve the trade issue that much more difficult. Um, so that's been a big factor in all of this. There's no doubt about that. And uh, that um, obviously adds to the uncertainty. But, uh, you know, bear in mind the talks did proceed despite the Huawei issue blowing up, uh, I think, on the night that President Trump and President Xi Jinping actually met. Um, so they have in the past put these issues aside and, and made progress. And hopefully that's what will happen going forward. But they, they all add to the uncertainty. There's no doubt about that. Well, I noticed the uh, CBOE index uh, actually went, uh, was very high, showing investor anxiety. Um, was at a year high. So what can investors expect for the next few months? Well, I, I guess uh, maybe it's a case of selling may go away. Um, we, we saw a very strong rally from late December in share markets around the world and in Australia. Uh, Chinese shares rallied something like 30%. US shares rallied 25%. Global shares not quite as much as that, but still pretty good. And we managed we managed to rally about seven eight percent. So we've seen pretty good rallies uh, from late last year. Markets had become overbought. Um, sentiment had pushed from being excessively negative to to being on the positive side. Not not extremely positive, but nevertheless positive. Um, and so to a degree, markets were vulnerable to some sort of correction. And that seems to be what we're now seeing. And it's just so happened that it's lined up with the the old seasonal saying, selling may go away. Um, got to bear in mind the other side of that uh, quote, come back on St. Ledger's Day. So the full saying is selling may go away, come back on St. Ledger's Day. So you don't give up on shares altogether. I think there will be a resolution here. Uh, we're seeing still very supportive monetary policy globally. Valuations aren't at, at extremes. Lower bond yields work to make uh, shares more attractive um, over time. So all of these things, I think, will ultimately enable share markets to, to find some sort of low, and hopefully that's above the low points we saw last year. But uh, I guess the bottom line is, yes, we could see more downside, more weakness in the short term, but ultimately I'm optimistic that we'll end the year higher than we are now, and therefore you don't want to give up on shares altogether. Well, Shane Oliver, thank you very much for your time again. My pleasure. Thank you. So what's been happening in the news? Well, global markets have been hit with the US-China trade war, 
with Wall Street in freefall, wiping more than $1.4 trillion off the value of equity markets. It all started when Donald Trump challenged China to return to the negotiating table and do a trade deal with him before the next US presidential election, or face even tougher demands in his second term. In a bombastic series of tweets after talks failed to avert an escalation in existing US tariffs and gave way to threats of more to come, Mr Trump accused Beijing of trying to stall until after the next election, when it could negotiate against a softer Democrat president. However, he warned late on Saturday that they know I'm going to win, thanks to the best economy and employment numbers in US history. The deal will become far worse for them if it has to be negotiated in my second term. Will be wise for them to act now, he wrote, adding that he loves collecting big tariffs. The outburst rounds out a week of presidential negotiation by Twitter in which Mr Trump has doubled down on his strategy of goading China towards a hardball deal. US officials began on Friday imposing a 25% tariff up from 10% on US $200 billion of Chinese imports and issued formal notice that the process of slapping the impost on the country's products. And China has responded saying it will impose tit-for-tat tariffs on an additional US $60 billion worth of US goods from June the 1st, hitting back at Washington in defiance of a Twitter threat from Donald Trump. China's finance ministry released a statement on Monday evening stating that the US move to tariffs from 10% to 25% on US $200 billion in Chinese goods on Friday, had escalated trade frictions between the US and China. China's Commerce Ministry, whose officials are negotiating the trade deal with the US, said in a separate statement that China's countermeasures were rational and restrained. The start date would depend on US actions. And Morgan Stanley has warned that the escalation in stock market woes has increased the likelihood for a prolonged economic downturn, the most reliable killer of bull markets. J.P. Morgan Chase and Co.'s Head of Cross-Asset Fundamental Strategy, John Norman, warned that stocks could fall another 10%. While last week's correction helped move the risk-reward closer to a balance, we think there is likely more downside than upside based on our high-conviction view that earnings expectations remain too high by 5 to 10%. Australia had another weak wages result, with no evidence of a material pickup. Average hourly wages, excluding bonuses, rose by 0.5% after seasonal adjustments, undershooting expectations for a larger increase of 0.6%. Despite the quarterly undershoot, the increased wages over the year held steady at 2.3%. And the value of housing finance fell by 3.2% in March, more than reversing the gain seen in February. After last month's bounce, a fall was not surprising, although the magnitude of the loss was larger than expected. The yearly decline slowed marginally, though from 20.3% in January, 18.6% in February, to 18.4% in March. And consumer confidence fell last week, as Australians' perception of the economy at large took a sharp negative turn following the central bank's decision not to cut the cash rate, ANZ analysts say. The ANZ Roy Morgan Australian Consumer Confidence Index slid by 2.1% from the previous week, with the time to buy a household item dropping 2.5%. And confidence levels at Australian businesses remain weak, according to the latest NAB Australian Business Survey for April. And business conditions have deteriorated sharply, with steep falls in employment prospects as well as sales and profits. Perceived operating conditions seek near the lowest level since mid-2014. Forward-looking indicators such as new order and operating capacity remain at levels well below those seen in prior years. Business conditions fell to three index points after the short-lived bounce last month. 
while confidence levels did improve a touch with the NAB lifting from zero up from minus one in April, it remains both below average and near the lowest level since mid-2013. And Prime Minister Scott Morrison has made a last-ditch bid to boost his stalling election campaign with a pledge to help young Australians get on the property ladder, as a new opinion poll showed his government remains on track to lose Saturday's vote. Morrison will offer guarantees for first home buyers, meaning they only have to save 5% of the purchase price as a deposit instead of the 20% typically demanded by banks. With many young Australians priced out of the market by a five-year housing boom, the issue has been pivotal during the election campaign. The new policy may not be enough, however, to engineer a come-from-behind victory. Morrison's Conservative government trails and left-leaning Labor Party 49% to 51%, according to a news poll published by the Australian newspaper on Monday. Should that margin be replicated at the ballot boxes, Labor will win power for the first time in six years. The property market has been central to the election campaign. While prices are now falling, many Australians are trapped in the rental market. Opposition leader Bill Shorten has already pledged to curb tax breaks for property investors that help turbocharge the market. He swiftly adopted Morrison's deposit guarantee, meaning first home buyers will get some relief regardless of who wins on Saturday. The $500 million plan to help first home buyers into the market did not go through Cabinet and has been modelled for its impact on property prices, as experts warn the policy will struggle to meet its objectives. And the Commonwealth Bank has set aside a new $714 million provision for customer remediation costs, bringing total refunds for failings in its banking and wealth divisions and program costs to more than $2 billion. The bank's quarterly earnings update on Monday highlighted the tough environment for banks as its cash earnings fell sharply lower. Unaudited cash profit from continuing operations fell about 9% to about $1.7 billion for the third quarter, excluding the extra customer compensation costs. Expenses rose 24%, including the provision, and edged up 1% without it. CBA's trading update on Monday comes after the three other major banks reported half-year numbers over the past fortnight, also dragged down by heavy remediation costs as banks clean up after the Hain Royal Commission. And National Australia Bank and ANZ Banking Group are dragging their heels on fully disclosing the risks of their business from climate change, climate activists say. Both banks have signed up to Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures Reporting, which requires regular reporting of the business risks of climate change for their investors. But Market Force's Executive Director, Julian Vincent, said the two banks had produced virtually nothing in their new set of interim results. NAB more than doubled its coal exposures to $1.47 billion in the year to March, but reduced its coal power generation exposures by $58 million. NAB's investor presentation showed the company's lending to the mining sector expanded to $10.5 billion from $7.6 billion in the prior year. Coal mining accounted for 14% or $1.47 billion, more than double the $608 million of coal loans a year earlier, which was 8% of the total. NAB did not include a scenario analysis, which made them the biggest loser, Vincent said. ANZ included a limited set of metrics that showed their progress towards emissions reduction targets and its development in funding green initiatives. There was no scenario analysis. And an $18 billion surge in renewable energy infrastructure is part of a stronger-than-expected spend on infrastructure that is offsetting falling residential construction and will limit job losses, the latest six-monthly forecast from Peak Body Australian Construction Industry Forum show. 
The boost in new projects under the electricity and pipelines category over the past six months is more than the entire $14 billion worth spent in the sector in FY18. And nearly all of it, 97%, is on infrastructure to support the growing demand for renewable energy, the Australian Construction Market Report shows. And secret research shows that the reputation of the mining industry is nearing crisis in Queensland, with a decline in positive sentiment and a bulge in distrust even among people who support the industry. The survey of Queenslanders found a belief mining profits benefited a few at the expense of the rest of the country in the future. The QRC-funded survey found only their scandal-plagued financial and aged care sectors have worse reputations than mining. The distrust was mainly based on strong negative perceptions of open-cut coal mining. The study, carried out by market research company Ipsos for the Queensland Resources Council, found that perceptions of the resources sector in Queensland are almost entirely based on strong negative perceptions of open-cut coal mining. The results of the confidential research challenge the political wisdom that the electorate is divided between coal-loving Queenslanders and voters in southern states who want stronger action on climate change. The findings of the studies, billed as a reputation deep dive, include only finance and aged care, industries whose conduct sparked royal commissions, have a more negative reputation than mining. Tourism and agriculture are viewed more favourably, but mining is seen as a threat to their existence. Renewable energy and sustainability are top of mind and seen as a future we should all be embracing. The resources industry is focused on continuing to mine rather than invest resources and money into the progression of renewables. The government is not seen as taking a leadership role on climate change policy. The resources industry is aligned with government in continuing reliance on coal power stations. The resources industry is also seen as unsustainable and its strong association with coal and traditional energy leaves it vulnerable to attack. Without prompting, nearly one in five people said the resources industry damages the environment, almost as many as those who said it supports the economy or creates jobs. And the days of record-breaking broadcast deals for sports outside the major codes may be coming to an end, as Foxtel looks to cut costs amid pressures on profits. The pay TV provider could also hit subscribers with another pay increase. This follows an 11.5% or $3 increase for Foxtel's basic $29 per month service. On Monday, News Corporation released the most detailed look into Foxtel's finances that investors have ever seen publicly. The documents showed Foxtel's large and rising cost base, which has put stress on the business as it deals with declining revenue and earnings over calendar 2018 showed Foxtel had operating expenditure of $2.56 billion and is forecasting its capital expenditure to be between $470 million and $480 million for the financial 2019, following a year where it rolled out KO Sports, 4K Video, and is planning the release of a new user interface in the coming months. Of Foxtel's operating expenditure in the same time, $1.6 billion was related to programming costs, of which the pay TV provider said about $800 million was related to sports rights and the production associated with broadcasting them. While sports costs are largely fixed over the length of the rights deals, News Corp said there was an opportunity and potential lever to reduce spend on non-marquee sporting content. However, the media conglomerate did not define what sport is considered marquee for Foxtel. On an audience and cost basis, Foxtel's biggest sports are the AFL, NRL and cricket, all of which have long-term contracts with the pay TV provider. Foxtel will likely have to make some tough decisions to reduce its fixed cost base, and sports that aren't considered marquee could face a fall in the value of their rights deals. And takeover target Automotive Holdings Group has warned profits for 2018-19 will be weaker than expected because of a downturn in new car sales and a soft performance from the refrigerated logistics business it's trying to sell. The downgrade 
amid an extended slump in new vehicle sales across the industry as consumer confidence is hit by falling house prices and pre-election jitters, raises questions about whether Predator AP Eagers might do the same at its annual meeting on May the 15th. AP Eagers has an agreed $2.3 million merger proposal with AHG that got the green light from the AHG board last week after the Allscript deal was sweetened. A merged AP Eagers and AHG would create a market leader in new vehicle dealerships with almost 12% of the sector and have 229 new car dealerships locations in Australia. The deal still requires the approval of the Australian Competition Consumer Commission. AHG said that operating net profit after tax was now likely to be $50 million compared with the guidance of between $52 million and $56 million outlined in February. And car dealership group AP Eagers has warned that profits for the June half could be up 10% below the same time last year, as weak new vehicle sales across the industry crimp the bottom line. AP Eagles Chief Executive Martin Ward said external trading conditions in the car industry nationally were difficult and across the industry. New vehicle sales were down to 8.1% for the first four months of calendar 2019. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Chris Balash, CEO and co-founder of Provenir, an ag tech company which has built Australia's first vertically integrated, commercially licensed mobile abattoir to process livestock at the point of production on the farm where they're raised. And I'll be talking to Indeed economist Callum Pickering about Australia's wages and labour force figures. And of course, I'll be bringing you all the week's news. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at TalkingBiz, on Facebook and on LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Have a great week. Take care, be good, and looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. 